there's a way of understanding the entire teachings of the Buddha as the teaching of generosity. It really, in, in two weeks, today I want to talk about mindfulness. Last week I told you the life of the Buddha. Today we're going to talk about his teaching about mindfulness. Next week we're going to teach about the teaching of loving kindness. And the week after, on the 7th, we'll talk about uh, paramita practice, which is the cultivation of the capacities of goodness in the heart. Truth to tell, they're all the same. I really, uh, I can't imagine saying, well, I practice mindfulness, but not metta and not paramita practice. They're all different permutations of each other. I am convinced that being mindful is the practice of loving attention to each moment. You can't be mindful in a cold or distant way. You can't be mindful without being compassionate because it would be too hard to meet every moment. It requires an open heart. That's why I like that particular um, phrase, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart. I think it makes a statement about the fact that meeting the moment fully means with an undefended heart. With an undefended heart means, if it's there, that I feel safe enough to be completely here. If I feel safe enough to be here and I meet the moment fully, I'll see what's happening. And I will respond with kindness, not because I remember to, but I think it's because what we, it's what we are motivated to do. So the heart leaps up to do the right thing. You know, if someone falls, you pick them up. You don't have to say, now, what's the right protocol for a fallen down person? I mean, you know, the, the, there are things that the heart does without thinking about it. This story that we, the, the, the account that we heard from, from Ted this morning uh, about serving people in need, and then the story I told you afterwards about uh, the, the, the sense of serving people and the, people, the sense of people coming because they have a particular need that needs to be addressed, and the look that people might exchange that means I need help, and the, the ability to be able to say, I'm here. How can I help you? In a sense, those are both acts of generosity. How can I help you? Means I'm available. How can I help you? I give you my time. I give you my attention. I need help is also, in a sense, a generosity of giving somebody the possibility of connection. Everything you could think about is a permutation of an act of generosity. I think we either move close to people or away from people, or close to life and away from it. You know, I hadn't planned to tell this story at all, and it just came into my mind, so I will tell it briefly, and then I'm going to tell you about the Mindfulness Sutta, because I want to do it today. But um, I I was thinking in the last few days... I was, re, I was actually rewriting a story that probably many of you have, uh, have heard. A couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, I went to uh, teach a, oh, I went to, I was a presenter at a conference at Kripalu Yoga Center in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, it's an extraordinary mini culture in the, in the middle of a larger culture that I think, um, is having, I, I don't know, more than ever, it seems sometimes more than ever, that witty criticism, especially biting witty criticism, has a certain amount of vogue, you know. It's a, if I watch TV, or it seems, it seems to be getting a lot of attention. Uh, sweet words, ah, but witty, incisive criticism. I used to have the seat behind the... Uh, um, I won't tell you who he was, one of the uh, music critics and for one of the Bay Area newspapers at the symphony. And I'm convinced that he started to write his notes on the side of the program before they started to play. <laughs> that that uh, three notes got started to play and he'd start to write, that criticism. So I was thinking about uh, being in a, uh, a community where people aren't critical at all. And Kripalu has an ethos of over-the-top appreciation. It's the opposite of criticism. Everything is, thank you so much. You did that great. That was wonderful. So I took my daughter, whom some of you have met because she sometimes comes here, 
was a grown-up woman, and so we took classes together and did yoga together. It was great. And, uh, the, and then the program was unfolding, and I'm one of the presenters. And uh, she said, uh, afterwards, she said, you were great, Mom. She said, you get nervous when you give a lecture. And I said, no, I don't. But, you know, here I get less than any place else because they get, the introduction at Kripalu is such a, not only, and now we are happy to have Sylvia Borstein, but a whole complete rundown of whatever in my whole life I ever did good, practically, <laughs> so that by the time you're up there, you really feel fabulous. You get up, and you're in a great mood. That's a person who did all that. Wow. You, know, you feel really good. So it comes out great. And then, because really it does, because you're so relaxed. How could a person like that do a bad job? You know, so It's a really a good idea to give a build-up like that. And then you finish, and you sit down, and yeah, sometimes at a conference they say, oh, thank you very much. Now we're going to have... You sit down and that same introducer then says, that was great. Thank you so much. I especially liked what you said about da 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 And they have an, an immediate playback review of what you did, highlighting your best points. So you really feel wonderful. It's like before and after. And they do it on everybody. And I, and I was feeling in the room throughout the week how everybody's mood was just lifted up. It was like magic. Everybody went around the hall smiling at each other. <laughs> then an atmosphere of appreciation. Everybody feels safe. At the end of the time, we're there for five days or so, and uh, we're ready to go home, and so they take faculty pictures, and then everybody wants to take a picture of you, and they take a picture of me with Emmy together. Everybody hugging everybody, faculty hugging, people hugging you, thank you so much. Hugging, hugging, hugging Emmy because she was with me, everybody hugging. We go to the airport, the person who drives us to the airport in uh, Hartford, telling us, you did great, please come back, we get out of the car, take out the suitcase, we're hugging him, <laughs> hugging we fly back, we come on the airport, or we get off the marine with the last people off the bus. We get off the bus at Larkspur Landing. By the time I pay my fare, uh, and we get down, the driver is in the back of the bus, standing there with our two suitcases left. Everybody's got the suitcases and gone. So we're hurrying to the driver, and in the middle, we're hurrying. I look over at Emmy, she's looking at me, and we both burst out laughing because we could see, I could see that she was dead on course to hug that bus driver. (laughs) So we didn't do it. You know, we just pick up the suitcase and leave. And after we get by, we burst out laughing. I said, I saw you. You're going to hug the bus driver. And she said, well, you were also. I saw it. You know, I saw it. And, And the thing was, we were, you know, because it gets like in a habit. You have to restrain yourself. Oh, no, no. But afterwards, I thought about, a lot, about the infectiousness of moods and the generosity of praise. It's a generous thing to say to somebody, you, you know, not to make it up, but to say the best things about somebody and to give them a replay of what they did great. We do that with children. It's called, you know, good parenting. You did great. That's wonderful. Someone comes home and draws three sticks and you stick it up on the refrigerator for a month, you know. This is wonderful. Look, it's wonderful. That you did great is very good for the soul because you feel safe around people who tell you you did great. You feel relaxed. When you feel relaxed, your heart feels good and you feel like hugging people. That's where the hugging comes from. The hugging is normal when you feel good. You feel like hugging. And, I th- and the whole reason I'm telling you this story is it occurred to me that, that, the, that the hugging is a metaphor for coming near to somebody. You don't hug somebody at a distance. You know, that, if you, if, that you don't actually have to hug everybody in the world, but it draws you nearer to them as opposed to when you don't feel safe with somebody. You draw away from them. The last thing you do is hug them. Hug them. You know, you know if, you're, if you're in a relationship and you've been having a tough time with your partner and the partner says, come, give me a hug, you think, ah, you know, the, you know and you, know, you don't feel like, you know, feel like I have to be in a hugging mood to hug because, I, you know, I can't hug you because I still feel unsafe about you because you said that not nice thing about me. And I think it has all to do with safety in the mind and ease in the mind. 
And it's all to do with generosity because when everybody's giving each other presents of praise, of time, of interest, you don't have to give stuff. You know, I was actually thinking when, uh, when Jerry Springer was saying this morning about nobody gives presents, they give the present of their company. You know, it says on a, on a wedding invitation, the presence of your company is invited. The, you know, that the presence of your company, the, the honor of your presence, something like that. But if you come and you show up, it's a gift. And you pay attention to people and you bring a pie or you talk to them or you keep them company or you hold their baby for a while during the dinner so they can eat. There's a lot of exchanges of generosity, of uh, energy, not of stuff. And I think that's why people like Thanksgiving and they're all flying every place to go and do it. But there's a way, and I want to come back to it, that I actually think that generosity is a foundational piece, not for that reason, that the giving of, of one's presence and the giving of one's energy lifts up everybody. But on top of that, it's the opposite of holding on. And I think that what the Buddha taught really fundamentally as the cause of suffering is that the, the, the urge to grasp what is ungraspable, essentially, since everything is ephemeral, is really the source of all of our suffering. And we grasp onto things. We do, we hold on. It has to be otherwise. Imagine about all of the fights that people are having today, alas, alas, because people get confused, you know, about um, you didn't come to my house, you always came to my house. Now you're going to your mother-in-law's house. For the last 50 years you came to my house. Now you're going to your mother-in-law's house. It was always the other way, but now it's this way, Mom. But no, it was always the other way. So on an otherwise happy day where everyone is alive and well, all kinds of it. You probably all you laughed. You probably all know somebody who's having a little trouble with who's going to the wrong party tomorrow. You know that you, that if the mind could think out of the box and think, this is my person. They are alive. They're going to go eat somewhere in safety. That's enough. Doesn't matter whose table they eat at. They'll eat at mine next week. The mind gets really peculiar. I'll tell you the the, the ultimate. Well, I don't know if this is the ultimate, but this is an ultimate and really peculiar. And then we'll do the sutta. <laughs> I read it in yesterday's paper last night. A man whose name I've now forgotten died yesterday in England. He was 109 years old. Did you read that? He was the last remaining survivor, apparently, they know, of a, of a, of a battle that took place in France in, uh, during the First World War in 19... 17, the truce of 19, I think it's 1917, maybe it was 1914. But there was one Christmas when um, French and English and German forces were firing each other in a terribly, terribly disastrous, bloody battle where millions of people, I think, were killed. Thousands of people certainly were killed in that particular siege of the war. Where on Christmas Eve, after weeks of shelling, this is in the kind of warfare where people are you know, going back and forth holding a line, weeks of shelling, on Christmas Eve, suddenly, the guns fell silent, and everybody came out of their trenches. And they, Do you know the story? And they met each other in the middle. And they exchanged cigarettes. And my hair stands on end when you hear this. They exchanged cigarettes. They sang Christmas carols in uh, German and French and English. They exchanged tunic buttons as souvenirs. They played soccer. They played soccer with each other. They told jokes. They hung out. And then they went back behind their lines and resumed the war and killed each other. A lot of people died after that. And you wonder, it's like a miracle moment. People really, it's really, you look it up on Google. It's the miracle Christmas of 1914 or 1917, the Christmas truce, I think it's what it's called. There are books written about it and people interviewed about it. And you think to yourself, how come it didn't arise in the minds of all of those people 
in the middle of having a smoke with somebody and singing Christmas carols. You know what? What if tomorrow we just all put down the guns, I'll start to cry, and went home. You go home, I'll go home. I'm not going to come after you. You don't come after me. Nobody has to make us do this. What if we all go home tomorrow? Everybody go home, have dinner with your family. How come something like that didn't arise in their mind? What, what could happen to otherwise good people? To otherwise good people? I mean, people don't normally want to kill other people. I mean, it's not a normal. I mean, some people do, but it's a very, very, very minor occurrence amongst populations of people, and those people aren't healthy. Healthy people don't want to kill other people. It's, I mean, we are, as a species, amiable animals, really. We go around in groups. We, the hermits are very rare, you know, really, really hermits. If you look in the back of every single magazine, everybody's looking for a relationship. <laughs> Everybody in the world. I was reading the National Enquirer as I was going out of the supermarket yesterday. In the back of the National Enquirer, everybody is looking for a relationship. I like those ads in the backs of things, you know. Comparative ads in the backs of comparative things. You just look where you think you're going to find somebody like you. But everybody is looking for somebody. We are amiable animals. We want to group together. Um, We want to get together. So it's so odd that the mind gets... I don't think that individual minds get the idea, I want to do that. I think that there's a kind of a consciousness that gets inflamed, and that it's so easy to get stirred up. I mean, we know that um, from our own experience in this country. It's very easy to stir people up and arouse passions to do things that human beings otherwise would not want to do to each other. So one of the things that... I think it would be fair to say that one of the points about religious practice, all of them, all of the great religious traditions that I know, not just Buddhism, but the Western religions that we know, Christianity, about turning the other cheek, about forgiving people. Part of this morning was someone called in to talk about how Jesus would have celebrated Christmas and whether he would have done so much buying uh, or cut down so many trees. Um, So let's, ta- so let's really do the homework for today. This was the homework. As you remember, at the end of last week's episode in the life of the Buddha, he had, um, uh, he had had his equivalent of what I think we all have at some point in our life, all of us who find ourselves here this morning. He'd, um, for each of us, I'll start from us, for each of us I think there's some time in life that we really begin to think to ourselves, what's this about? I came across the same cartoon again, it recycles from time to time. In a magazine this week it's got four boxes. In the first box you see a, a fish that's a kind of a proto-reptile creeping out of the sea a long time ago. And then you see a crocodile kind of uh, marching along. And then you see a monkey swinging from a tree. And then in the last one, you see a person sitting on a rock. And they all have a bubble over their head, a thought bubble. And the fish creeping out of the sea is thinking, eat, survive, procreate. And the reptile, the crocodile creeping along, or the alligator, whatever it is, a dinosaur is thinking to himself, eat, survive, procreate. And the monkey swinging in the tree is thinking, eat, survive, procreate. And the person sitting on a rock is looking up and thinking, 
wonder what this is all about. <laughs> and I actually think that, that that's a pretty fair... I think actually, by the way, that it could be eat, survive, procreate. I wonder what this is about. <laughs> I don't want to really dismiss those other parts because we're still animals. But we ha- we're animals with very big brains. We have, the, we have the same limbic brain as a dinosaur, really. And one of the things that Dan Goldman said in his book, Emotional Intelligence, is that on the level of startle, we're just like dinosaurs. He said we make a, an instantaneous, thought-free determination of safety, not safety. He says if it was a thought, it would be, do I eat it or does it eat me? Which is his way of you know, dinosaur brain activity. Do I eat it or does it eat me? Am I safe? That's what actually what causes us to jump out of the the pathway of cars coming around the corner or fall to the ground if we hear shots go off. You know, you don't think to yourself, hmm, what should I do now? What would be a good idea? You know, the body just does it. If you trip on a step, you catch yourself. You don't think, hmm, tripping, what should I do? So, I mean, it's good that we have that limbic brain, but we also have this enormous rest of the brain over it. What? <laughs> this enormous rest of the brain over it that thinks it over you know that we, we we have a sudden impulse to do something but then we think wait a minute first of all you jump out of the way of cars or you catch yourself on the steps but what if someone insults me in the middle of a uh, of a of a of a faculty meeting or inadvertently or advertently or whatever and I get very upset and angry and have a thought uh in between the angry thought and the saying out of an angry response, maybe I have a thought in my mind that says, wait a minute, think a minute. How do you want to put this? What would be a good way to do it? You don't have to shout. You know, somewhere past the age of three, when we say to children, use your words. How many people ever said to their children, use your words? You can use your words. When they lie down, they kick and scream, and you say, in a nice way, please use your words, and then I'll be ready to discuss this with you. We really ask of human beings to really negotiate that space in between the impulse to do something and the way it comes out. And then we take an impulse, and then we decide what's a good thing to do with it. This is good. I'll do it. This is wholesome. This is a good way to say it. This is not good. I feel like hitting. I feel like lashing out. I feel like taking this thing. This is very nice. I'll just put it in my pocket. That we don't do that. And we think, this is very nice. Now, can I afford it? Or what should I do? Or maybe I can, or maybe I can't, or maybe I could save up for it. So we have that whole space in the mind that thinks, I feel like, but now I can determine whether or not it's wholesome. And whether or not, in the long run, it's conducive to my peace of mind and conducive to the peace of the world. And when you think about wars, you think that, that it's such a dramatic way to say that adult people who somehow cannot figure out a way to work things out and share so they have to shoot each other. There's something someone has not thought about it. So at the end of last week, we, we, we came to the place where the Buddha... Back to that fourth picture. What's this all about? Thought to himself. He was married. He had a child. He was living very comfortably in very rich surroundings. And he thought to himself, what's this about, this life? What are you supposed to do? And is it true that it ends in death? If it's just a one-way trip to old age, decay, and death, what's the point of it? What are you supposed to do with it? And if it only ends in death, we'll be separated from everyone we love. And they from us. So what's the point of that? And how should I not lament the fact that it's all getting used to what I don't have and what I can't have or what doesn't work anymore? If it's all getting used to being separated from what is pleasing to me, that life is a series of challenges We lose everything that's dear to us if we live long enough not to be lost to them. So how do we do that and still 
not only feel not discouraged about life, but feel encouraged about it and want to make it good for people. How do you keep a good heart? How do you keep yourself generous and compassionate? Because not only is it nice for the world, but it's the redemptive move for your own heart. But he didn't know that as the answer then. So he said, how do you keep your heart engaged and hopeful and kind and generous? So in the story, he left his family uh, and went off and... uh, you remember last week we had come to the point where he'd studied with two meditation teachers of that era, both the most famous meditation teachers. He'd learned to be an adept in two particular forms of concentration meditations. He'd spent three years with one and three years with the other. He'd been invited to stay with both of them and, and stay as a teacher with them. And he turned it down. He said, you know, I've really gotten really good at meditating and some of the stories about him was that he had such control of his mind that he could meditate for days without eating, that he could exist on one rice grain. I take these to be metaphors and allegories, you know. But but you could you see you do see sculptures though, or, or renditions of a, such a skinny Buddha that his backbone is visible through his belly. But I think they're metaphors for saying that he had extremely good control of uh, his mind, sit out in the sun for days. So he said, I can do all of that, but I haven't figured out how to live life with a peaceful heart, how to live a real life with a peaceful heart in the middle of the world. I haven't figured out how to do that. One of the sights that he saw in his wake-up vision was the sight of a monk, peaceful of visage. And he intuited that that monk had figured out some way to keep his heart peaceful. So he became a monk. Then he left these two teachers after three years with each and went off on his own to, um, he said, to discover the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, in the legend, uh, he was met after his experience in Bodh Gaya, sat down under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya. This is the... the the story of someone who came and fed him some warm rice gruel and milk. And he sat down and said, I'm not going to get up until I have figured it out. And I love that story. I mean, I, I love the sense of him sitting down with his hand on the ground. Is that one of those? Oh, yeah, there he is. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they're like this and sometimes they're like this. I like that particular one where the Buddha has his hand on the ground because he is saying to the forces of Mara that have come to tell him, forget about it, you can't, you can't figure this out, I'm going to distract you. And he is saying, I have a right to be here. I love that. I think about each of us in this world uh, who for some whatever reason feel not as good about ourselves as we should because we are all as good as we could be. We should all practice that and put the hands down on the ground and say, I have a right to be here. None of us could be different. None of us could be better. We're just what we are. Amazing. Amazing. We all got up this morning. So here he puts his hand out. Mara comes along and says, tries all kinds of things to distract him. He is undistractable. In the morning, he says, I figured it out. I figured it out. And he spent some time, some weeks, in the area of that tree presumably consolidating his vision, he then left there and met, as he walked away from there, five ascetics with whom he had practiced in the six years before, who said to each other, here comes that lazy monk, Gautama, who quit the order and went off on his own and gave up the really serious ascetic life. Let's not talk to him. That's the legend I... In various places where you read it, it's usually pretty cute. They say, let's not talk to him. It sounds just like the third, you know, first graders on a playground. Let's not talk to him. Anyway, let's not talk to him. But presumably in that legend, when they come near to him, they see that such a radiance is coming out from him that they really decide that they need to talk to him. And they talk to him. And what he explains to them 
in the form of the sermon that set in motion the turning of the wheel of the Dharma are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which we talked about at the end of last week. Life is challenging because it's always changing. You can't make yourself comfortable permanently. There are really lovely moments, but everything's always changing. Kind of like a soap opera. I'm so happy, nothing will ever come between us. Ring, ring. And, you know, it's, but it's like that. It's like that. It's like that. In the, you know, and, and sometimes in banal ways and sometimes in terrible ways, you know. Everybody who has, including people here, uh, loved ones serving in Iraq is terrified when the phone rings, you know, because it could be their next-door neighbor saying, can I bring you a pie? And it could be someone from the government calling. You don't want to, you know. Your life can change. Our lives are continually interrupted by what we didn't expect. Everything. Everything we didn't expect. When uh, we heard about Martin Ilium this morning, he was expecting to go retire in Puerto Rico. He didn't do it. I'm happy he expected to, you know. Probably enjoyed the expecting, but, you know, we expect this and we expect that. For a while, what we expect happens and then it doesn't. So here's the first noble truth, that life is challenging. We're always adjusting to a new circumstance. The second of the noble truths is that suffering is the extra tension in the mind when we can't accommodate the truth of our experience. That's so. It's, it's often translated as craving. It's tanha, which means uh, the insatiable need to have something. And sometimes it's misunderstood as desire, like I, I have a lust for, um, oh, I don't know, uh, a cheeseburger for lunch. Or, you know, sometimes you have a lust for a cheeseburger for lunch. You know, or, you know, it's, it's not about not having desires, bodily desires or mental desires. I really hope I meet a person and get a relationship. It's about having a desire which, if it can't be met, you cannot be at ease. It's the inability to be happy if that desire isn't met. It's an insatiable craving for things to be a certain way. A, a wish that they be a certain way. There's so many things that I wish for. I mean, some, you know, in the world and for me and for my family, there are lots of things that I wish it were this way and not that way. It's not about not wanting or not wishing. It's about the mind being unable to relax about its not being so. And the ability to say, well, I wanted this, but I got that. And to feel sad about it. It's not even to not feel sad about it if it isn't your way. It's to not be angry about it. I don't let, just for that, I'm mad at life. Just for that. It should be other. Which is really a piece of non-wisdom. It couldn't be other. Things are what they are for such complicated karma. That's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that the mind could learn to be peaceful around what it gets and what it doesn't get. Peace is possible. Peace is possible is the third noble truth. That doesn't mean that you stop wanting things. Or I think probably I'll spend my whole teaching career talking about the meaning of a, of a great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Because I have preferences, and I really want to say it's not about becoming completely... You know, you don't go into a restaurant and say, bring me every, anything. You know, that it, it's not about that. It's not about forgetting tastes. It's about being able to say, oh, all right, this is what I've got. Everybody that we know who is dealing with an illness, we are all in some way, you know, dealing with this illness of life, but everybody who's dealing with a more compelling, rapid illness than just being alive is having to say, this isn't what I wanted, but I want what I got. The fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the path that cultivates the mind that says, okay, I'll be able, I'll just 
somehow. I can, I'll have the strength to change what I can and the courage to accept what I can't. Not a, I will, I do have the strength and I do have the courage that there's a path for that. And then the Buddha went out and he taught for the next 40 years. 40 years. He was in his 30s at that time. So about 40 years. He died in his 80s. And he walked around India. He founded a, a, a group of monks, a lineage, and then nuns. And most of the sermons that he taught were parables. He taught very much like Jesus. He went here and talked to a group of people, and then he went to another place and talked to another group of people. And most of the canon of the Buddha's life, the Theravada Buddhist canon, which is written in the Pali language, which is a language that didn't exist in the time of the Buddha. Sometimes they said the Buddha spoke Pali, he didn't. He spoke an earlier kind of dialect. It wasn't written down for at least 2,500 years. And by the time it was written down, it was written in Pali. And so it was passed down word of mouth for at least 250 years. And most of the canon are uh, parable stories. He went here, he said this, he told the story about that. He told the people of this, the story about... One of the, parable, one of the stories which was very helpful to me when I was a beginning student, was he went to the people of Kalama and he said, don't believe anything anybody tells you. Don't believe it if it's a, someone says it's a sage or this is a this or this is a that. Don't believe it if it's even a, uh, someone says this is a Buddha. Don't believe any doctrine that anyone tells you. You, if you hear something and it's interesting to you, you try it. And if it works for you, then you can believe it. If it doesn't work for you, don't believe it. It was very uh, inspiring for me to hear somebody say to me, you don't have to believe this. This is not the way it is. You try it out. If it works for you, good. And it doesn't. That was very freeing. It was freeing, first of all, because of all the concerns about am I accidentally taking on a new religion, which I, I don't know how big of a concern it was, but I might have thought about it. But it's also just because uh, I'm kind of... Um, Mm, I'm trying to think of a nicer word than feisty. Um, I, you know, I like to think that you know I consider things a lot. I, I'm, I'm, I'm. Um, I think carefully before I do things. I don't. Maybe I'm worried about being gullible or something. That would be the worst to be gullible or something. So I don't. I don't easily believe things. Uh, so someone said you'd have to believe it. Try it out. See if this does you any good. If it does you good, good. If it doesn't, that was very helpful. In that whole compendium, in that whole um, uh, canon, there are several sermons that are instructional sermons. The, there's, an, there's an instructional sermon about how to be a householder. There's a householder sermon, because most of the sermons were given to monks. But there's sermons for being a householder. There are uh, two sermons, the Sermon on Loving-Kindness and the, ser- the Sermon on Mindfulness, that are the particular um, underpinnings of all the teachings that we do here at Spirit Rock. They're both actually non-parochial sermons. They're non-doctrinal. They don't say anything about a cosmology. They talk about how the mind works, but they don't talk about a cosmology, how the world began or ends or... They don't require any kind of a leap of faith. They're instructional. Uh, they're instructions. And next week we'll do the, mind, the loving-kindness sermon. And today I want to tell you about the foundations of mindfulness sermon. Because really it's how people derived the instructions for uh, mindfulness teachings. If you go on a mindfulness retreat and people says, okay, close your eyes and bring your attention to the breath, this is where it comes from. The beginning of it is quite stirring. It, uh, this is the line that I like. 
First of all, it begins, Thus I have heard, which is how most of the suttas begin. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Kuru County, country, at a town of the Kurus named Kamasadama, and there he addressed the, the bhikkhus, the monks, thus. He said, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. And then he said, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Actually, it says nibbana because it's written in Pali. What are the four? Then he talks about the four foundations being attention, contemplating the body, contemplating feelings, contemplating mind, and contemplating objects of mind. And I want to tell you about each of those a little bit. You know, when you sit down and you do mindfulness practice, often, especially when you go to a first mindfulness meditation, people will say, okay, mindfulness is paying attention. This is at least was my experience when I began. Mindfulness is paying attention in your life all the time to what's going on. Outside, inside, it's um, I, I, I said in the middle of my first retreat, when I finally thought, had some really great eureka moment, I thought, ah, oh, I got it. And um, I went to my teacher for my next interview, and I said, I got it. This is like being on sentry duty. Like, really? <laughs> like, really? And uh, Jack said, no. <laughs> he said, it's a little like being on sentry duty, that you're really alert to everything that's going on inside and outside and around. He said, but sentries are tense. So this is alert and composed so that not only can you see what's happening, but you see it from a base of composure so it doesn't startle you. If it startles you, you'll turn away from it either either actually or metaphorically and you'll be confused by the startle. So that the instruction to begin with the breath is a very wise instruction. And I, and, and truth to tell also, they'd say it's mindfulness of everything. It's mindfulness of your whole experience. And then they'd say, close your eyes, bring your attention to your breath, and stay exclusively with the breath. And I said, well, wait a minute. I'm thinking to myself, I never said that because it's not nice to say that, but I thought it. I said, I'm thinking to myself, you just said it is mindfulness of everything. And all of a sudden, say, close the eyes. Now bring your attention to your breath and say exclusively with the breath. That seems to me to be like a different instruction from what we just said. And what I have come to realize and appreciate over all these years is that it makes a lot of sense. First of all, the sutta is is laid out that way. It starts with sit down and bring your attention to your breath. I think it's chosen for, for this reason. There's something... First of all, everybody is breathing, so everybody could follow that instruction. The second of all, except if you have some breathing illness, if you have lung difficulties, where your breath would be a, 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 um, a conflictual kind of experience, breath is easy for most of us. It would be also because breath is rhythmic. It has a kind of... Um, composing effect on the mind, calms it down. You know, all the old movies where someone's going to hypnotize someone with a watch, look at my watch, tick-tock, tick-tock. Remember those? Always in old cartoons. I haven't seen it in a long time, but, you know, there's a cartoon, follow my watch, you know. But really, there's something about breath, and people often uh, actually bring that up as a problem on retreat. They say, look, I take three breaths and I fall asleep. So, in fact, it is soporific. You do fall asleep with it in the beginning. So there are ways to work with that on retreat. But the fact is that it is calming. It's a little bit calming in the same way that going to the beach and staying near the waves is. If you just sit there all day and the waves come in and out, in and out, even if you don't listen to every one of them, they're kind of in your consciousness and the brain entrains itself. And there's something about that. You know, the truth to tell that knitting does the same thing if you just knit back and forth. There are certain activities that are rhythmic 
and cyclic and don't take a lot of attention that have the effect of calming down the excitement in the brain. We have so many things firing at one time. In order to perceive with clarity and with composure what's actually happening, what's going on out there, and what's going on in here in response to it. So the first of the, it begins with bringing the attention to the breath, that particular sermon. It also makes the, the, goes on to say, the meditator is aware of the whole of the body, not just the breath, how it's sitting, or how it's standing, or how it's moving about. On retreat, those of you who know, we, we organize our retreats so that there's 45 minutes or an hour of sitting, and then that much of walking, and that much of sitting, and that much of walking. And one reason is because you can't sit that long and your body would feel stiff. But the other is because sitting is a little bit soporific. You just sat and sat and sat. You tend to get a little bit somnolent. And when you walk, because you have to keep your eyes open, you bring a little bit more energy into the system. So if people want to actually sit, people say, you know, I don't like the walking. I just want to sit for two hours. We tell them, it's fine, sit for two hours and then walk for two hours. Just keep the system awake because it's not about falling asleep. It's not about becoming tranquil. It's about actually becoming present and alert and composed in it. I, I, I wonder if I have time to tell you this anecdotal story. It's a true story. When um, my friends and teachers uh, were looking for a monastery to buy on the East Coast 30 years ago, which they finally did buy in the town of Barry, Massachusetts. They looked at several old convents and monasteries in different towns, and someone turned them on to this particular uh, uh, monastery that had been uh, the novitiate for the Blessed Sacrament order of priests um, in Barry, Massachusetts. And they went to look at it one morning, and it turned out that they bought it. But... Uh, they were a little bit overwhelmed, but it's a wonderful big facility and a hundred people can meditate there at a time it was all set up. And when you think about it, Jack was maybe 30 years old. Sharon was just past her 20th birthday. They were really young people starting a big enterprise like that. And they had some financial backing that was going to buy them this monastery and they didn't know whether or not to do it. And they uh, took a lunch break and went into the town of Barry and they noticed that the... Uh, town motto for the town of Barry, which was founded in 1776, which says over the courthouse and which the police have on their, on the sleeve of their shirts and on the doors of their car, it says, town of Barry, tranquil and alert. And they thought, this is an omen, because what the, because it's, it's really lovely, isn't it? Because that's what the name of this meditation is supposed to be. Tranquil and alert, not asleep, there's a line in uh, the Song of Songs, and the line is this. It says, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. And I think it has the same meaning, that the usual ego-driven, confusing chatter of the mind, that's gone to sleep. All the needs, I need this, I want this, I have to do this. And when that's asleep, then my heart is awake, and I can be here and respond. So I think that that particular combination, I am asleep but my heart is awake. So the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. The second is mindfulness of feelings. It's called Vedna in Pali is the word for it. And it has a different meaning from feelings as in uh, you hurt my feelings. We have a a sense of what that means. How do you feel about that? When you say, I feel upset, or I feel angry, or I feel humiliated, or I feel embarrassed. There are only three kinds of feelings in this particular kind of lexicon. And the feelings are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. There are three kinds of feelings, according to, I mean, of course there are lots of other kinds of sentiments that we have, but just using this particular construction. The Buddha taught, and I think this is true if you think about it, that there are three kinds of emotional responses to a, a moment, and that every moment arises with a flavor. You know, so sometimes a big flavor of, of uh, whoa, this is so pleasant. 
but sometimes it's a little pleasant, and uh, sometimes it's a little unpleasant, and sometimes it's extremely unpleasant, and it's on a continuum. I actually don't notice so many neutral moments. The Buddha taught this, that when the experiences are neutral, we more or less don't pay any attention to them. You know, we kind of go going along, going along, going along. Like you're driving your car down the highway. Nothing much happening, not a lot of cars. You're not actually grooving so much on the road or the, you know, just getting along. I mean, I imagine watching the road, but the mind's doing something. And then a deer comes on the highway or someone says something on the radio or someone cuts you off or... All of a sudden, the sun is setting over the Golden Gate Bridge. But there's something that's pleasant or unpleasant. You suddenly notice it. Oh, look at this. I'll tell somebody about the sunset. Oh, look at that driver. What are they doing? So that something happens, and it's momentarily pleasant or unpleasant. And if, if, if one watches, if you watch, if I watch my mind in the moment after pleasant or unpleasant, moment actually simultaneously with it, it's it's pleasant, and I think, oh, I'll remember to tell this to somebody later. Oh, too bad I don't have my camera with me right here. I could just do that. Oh, that the mind will do something to say, I want a little bit more of that. It hardly says, that's just great, look at that, you know, <laughs> far out. You know, I'll just, it, that the, the mind becomes acquisitional when something pleasant is. You know, these days, everybody's getting holiday catalogs in the mail. I am trying to put them right into the recycle. Because if you look in them, there's no end of things that I did not know that I needed until you look in there. And then, and, you know, and, the, and the writing in them is so seductive. You know, the, and the mind is seducible, you know. The one tool you use for every garden job you have. I think, oh, wow, why could you say that? But I already have a garden tool for every job I have. Why do I need a one tool? But anyway, oh, and also that the, the something unpleasant happens. Someone cuts you off. That person, they didn't... But you don't know where that person's going. And in that moment, my mind is flurried up. It gets aggravated. The moment of aggravation, the moment of irritation in the mind is now coloring the next moment of the mind. It leaves an odor, it leaves an echo in the next moment of the mind. That if my, if my uh, intention is to keep my mind sweet so that my heart will be available to me, I don't really want to give much air time to that. Probably what happens if someone cuts me off and I get frightened is I got frightened. So I could think, oh, sweetheart, you got frightened, didn't you? Okay, relax, you're okay. Thank goodness, you're okay. Want to sing a little bit now? Forget about it, you know. But there's another way other than, I don't know. Or I could do on him or I could do on me. I shouldn't be driving at that time of day. You know, I chose the wrong time of day. It's too much traffic. There's a way that the mind can either get off on recriminating or it can say, let's not do that. Let's do something else. Let's sing a different song. You can do something else. I actually think one of the ways I like to talk about liberation is that I am not stuck with what with whatever um, whatever mind state has come along, whatever uh, what the opportunistic mind state it just moves in, says, "Oh, here's a nice place to live. I'll live in her mind for a little bit, and I'll stay here, and I can flare it up and or let it go." It does a very actually. It's really important to notice the the feeling tones of things. It's a crucial piece in meditation, not because we're not supposed to have feeling tones responses. Things are pleasant or unpleasant. You walk into a cold room, you think, "Brr, this is unpleasant." I mean, you walk into a pleasant smell dinner, you think, "Whoa, this is pleasant." You know, I mean, it's not supposed to not be like that. The what uh, what in some way is the crux of that? Is watching how the heart moves towards or against, and it's the and and it does so it responds. Great, I came to Aunt Jones for dinner. She always cooks wonderfully. There's nothing unwholesome about that. But if there are ways in which I have to have that, I must have it. I must have it now. I have to get rid of this now. That's those are the places where pain starts to happen. If you notice, it was pleasant. It was unpleasant. But how can I make the best of it? This is. Uh,
too short of a time to tell you the story of being with people in a situation that was unpleasant. We kept saying to each other, this is really unpleasant. And it actually made it much better, you know? You know, it's just like regular, normal people can say to each other. This is, it was in a storm, being cut off in the dark, in a storm, no food, at a remote re- retreat center. Keep saying to each other, this is really unpleasant. <laughs> it was really unpleasant. You can say, oh, just my luck, I'm here. Or, this is really unpleasant. I mean, there are some things that are really unpleasant, so... Mindfulness of feelings. The third is mindfulness of mind. And it really has to do, it's a little bit like the fourth foundation, which is mindfulness of mind objects, which are groups of the mindfulness of the Dharma, sometimes called. Mindfulness of mind is what's the climate of my mind? I could tell the climate of my body. I could say to you now, you know, my body is warm. Um, I can feel it vibrating a little bit. The vibrating's a little bit more um, around my heart center. It's a little bit more around my upper lip. My feet are cold. I mean, just I could report on what's the climate of my body. I could report on the climate of my mind. I don't know. My mind is um, um, full of happiness. It's fairly peaceful. Um, at this moment, it's empty of lust. At this moment, it's empty of um, anger or ill will. I'm perfectly aware that those are states that come and go and come and go. But being able to notice, the point, again, of being able to notice in this third foundation what's there in the mind is not that it should be one way and it should be the other way. But that whatever way it is, it's just there for now, you know. Um, I, I, I remember telling this group some weeks ago after Katrina, I said, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I, I, I said I had a hard time coming to class because I'm so upset about what's going on and I feel furious and um, it's not a good way, I think, to come and teach a class. And one of my friends, my friend Joelle on the way here, whom I visited, said, uh, you know, you can feel furious uh, without having ill will. And that was such a big revelation, you know, that so I could say, uh, there, there is uh, anger exists in my mind. No ill will, but anger. If I could do that, if we could do that in the world, that'd be fine, because I mean, as long as we've got nervous systems, we're going to get angry. Things don't go the way they do. My most um, favorite story about His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and anger is someone asking him once, do you ever get angry? And him saying, of course, ha! He always says that little ha. So, of course, ha! He says, things don't go the way you want. Anger arises. But it's not a problem. Ha! <laughs> the, so it's very clear that anger arises when things don't go the way you want. We get, you know, we do. It's wired into the wiring. But to be able to say anger arises, so now I'll do something about it that will be wholesome, obviously. And the coming and going. If if with any of these, if I pay attention to states of my body, if I pay attention to states of my of my the the arising and passing away of feelings, and if I pay attention to mind state the climate of my mind, what I will see, most of all, I, I hope, is that they are all transient phenomena, that they all come and go, that first it's pleasant, then it's unpleasant, then it's pleasant, then it's unpleasant. Being able to see that makes a certain amount of equanimity in the mind. So that, you know, I, I got an email from a friend yesterday who said, I'm, having, I'm in a pretty bad time at this point, you know, but that's the way it is. It's a, a couched in the sense, this is what's my truth now. Doesn't mean this person is not is feeling great about it. She's struggling, but to struggle with wisdom around it, to know this is a struggle. That at some point I won't be struggling, but now I am. Not even to stop. Not even that the wisdom should stop the struggling. I thought that for sure, if you, if I knew enough that everything would pass, the struggle would. I think the struggle gets less. I have not discovered the end of suffering yet. But I have a little bit more composure around the experience of suffering. 
than I used to have. I want to tell you the fourth foundation so that we have really done this today. Fourth foundation of mindfulness is a compilation. It's called um, Mind Objects. Sometimes it's called Mindfulness of the Dharma. It's the way in which you begin to see things um, uh, in, a, in a way that's imbued with, that makes sense or illuminates the truth of things. For instance, it would include seeing clearly that um, clinging is suffering, that insisting that, that the second noble truth is true, that when the mind is caught in a suffering, uh, a struggle, it suffers. And when it lets go, never happened to you that you're so mad about something and all of a sudden it's gone and it's like you recuperated from an illness. It's just such a relief. Or you have a depression and you get up one morning and the depression is gone. And praise God, it's like a, it's 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 just gone. And you begin to see, not only when something the mind has grabbed something that it it can ungrab, but that things pass. That the three things that we are hoped that we hope to see through this practice of incisive seeing, which is what mindfulness is. It's often translated into English. Mindfulness is translated from the Pali word vipassana, which is more often translated as seeing clearly, which is translated into French as vision profonde, which I like better, actually, because I think about, you know, you could see something, or you could, you could even see it. I'm not sure it's seeing clearly. You know, if I wipe my glasses and I put them on, I'll see clearly. But I don't know if I'll see profoundly. You know, that, and I really want to see profoundly what I thought about with I read that, that story again about the Christmas truce and I thought to myself all those people saw that they were up there having a party and they all remembered that was a far out thing to do why didn't they see profoundly and think hey we could keep this up and go home you know, there's another way to live what happened at that point why don't we see profoundly when we are grieved, that this time is going to pass, which does not preclude grieving. It precludes maybe a little bit about the panic about the grieving. Will the world ever come back? Will it ever look right? Uh, will I ever be able to laugh again? Maybe it, it, it eases a little bit of the panic around it. The three things that I want to know and remember are that things pass in the middle of tremendous tumultuous grief or fear or sickness or pain. I forget that. I want to remember it. I want to remember that struggling with what I can't change is making it worse. And the minute I say I give up, it's out of my hands, I'm going to feel better. And I want to remember that it's happening whatever is happening. Uh, not to a separate me, but to everyone in concert, that all of our experience is an interrelated web of very complicated karma. And even even the fact that breath goes in and out of me, it does it because there's still um, enough air, enough oxygen in this around this planet for us to breathe. And it does it because I still have enough lungs to make good use of it. There's nothing that actually happens that happens to someone alone or anybody in a vacuum. The fact that we're that we're all here today is is the result of a million transactions, probably thousands of traffic transactions that didn't cause any of us to get killed on the way here this morning. How many people had to drive right? Not just you. Everybody on the whole highways had to behave themselves this morning. Everybody had to eat right. Everybody had to sleep enough. Everybody's car had to work. It's a magic, completely miracle thing that we are all here this morning. You think about that. You say, whoa. So the Buddha said at the end of that particular sutta that if anybody practiced mindfulness for seven years, they would be guaranteed to rise to the next level of freedom from being trapped in confusion. Then he said, never mind seven years, seven months. Then he said, never mind seven months, seven weeks. Then he said, never mind seven weeks, seven days. If you just did it for seven days, every moment completely mindful, you would see so profoundly that you'd, you wouldn't be completely free 
of every kind of fetter of mind, but you'd be well on your way to freedom. I like to tell people that uh, in the beginning of long retreats, and then I like to tell them that at seven-day intervals. But in, in this moment, if we all went out of here, seven days, we'll see each other in seven days. But I'm glad we did that. I love doing that. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 23, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Art. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.